you've got your Bible, and I hope you do, grab it and go to uh, the book of Acts, Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 18. We are in uh, week two of a series called On Mission. And as you're turning there, Acts 18, I want to make a quick announcement. We have an addition to the family, um, the family of the Church of 1122, uh, Walker and Rachel Day, mostly Rachel, had a baby this weekend. <laughs> that is... Uh, that is Layla Grace. She weighs five pounds, seven ounces, and that is a keeper, in case you're wondering. That's a keeper, 19 inches long, and uh, Rachel was in labor for 30 hours. There have been wars that took less time <laughs> than that, but praise God, uh, everybody's happy and healthy, and, and they are doing great, so just continue to pray for them and lift them up. Um, uh, also, I just want to announce this just by looking around the room. We have several other service options at the Church of 1122. We have 722 on Thursday night. We probably need 200 of you to go there. We have a 9 a.m. service, which is almost as full as this. And we have this service. Uh, and then we have a 522 service every Sunday afternoon. It started last week. There were over 300 people here. It was an awesome first week. We need a bunch of you to move to um, Sunday afternoons. It has full kids' experience, too, okay? So for all of you guys, you can sleep in and go to the beach and whatever, you know, and just come Sandy. And we also know that uh, uh, football season is starting, praise God. So for those of you that go to the football game, just come with your tailgate breath, all right? It's a movement for all people, so we get it. So just show up with tailgate breath on, and, and we'll give you a mint, and we'll praise the Lord together. Okay. <laughs> um, one of the questions that Layla Grace... Uh, will be asked is, Layla, what do you want to be when you grow up? You remember that question when people ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And don't think about it too much if you're my age, because you'll think, oh no, <laughs> this is nothing like what I said. Nobody ever answers pastor, by the way. Nobody ever. You go astronaut, fireman, policeman, I mean, something cool, but not pastor. But the, the problem with our answer to that question is, and, and it, and it kind of reveals a big problem with our culture in America and that pursuit of life, liberty, and that pursuit of happiness, is we answer with our vocation or what we're going to do. But the question is, what do you want to be? And, and the real answer should be disciple, but what seven-year-old would say that, unless they're really weird or a pastor's kid? But most of us say this thing that we are going to do. But, the, but the, the truth is that what you do, what you do for a living should not define who you are and your identity is not rooted in what you do. That if you're a Christian, if you have surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and you can do all kinds of stuff, all kinds of different um, vocations, have all, any kind of career, but fundamentally who you were called to be is a son or a daughter of the Most High God and a disciple-making disciple on this earth. And so last week, we talked about being on mission in this city, and we celebrated some of the great things that God has been doing in this city and through this church. And we, and we looked at Acts uh, 18, 9, and 10, particularly where Jesus reiterates his vision to Paul when he says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And so what we're going to discover today is what Paul, Paul has been doing all throughout the book of Acts since we've been studying him a lot lately. He's going to keep doing what he's been doing, and he's going to be on mission just wherever he is. He's just going to be on mission no matter where he is. Doesn't matter the city, doesn't matter the, um, really the circumstance or wherever he is. So if you were to ask Paul, Paul, what do you want to be 
when you grow up? He would just answer a disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, what are you going to do, Paul? I'm going to do all kinds of stuff. I'm going to preach in synagogues. I'm going to make tents. I'm going to make disciples. I'm going to do all kinds of things. But the person that I'm going to be is a disciple of Jesus. And we're going to talk this afternoon today about what it looks like for you to be on mission, really just wherever you are. So Acts 18, beginning in verse 12, it says, When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and they brought him before the tribunal. Because you remember, he just keeps going to places and he shares the gospel. So now they're going to attack him and they're going to really make a court case against him. In verse 13, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Notice those little words, contrary to the law. In other words, they're basically saying he's not doing it right. I mean, yeah, he's preaching God and 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 people are getting saved and their lives are being transformed and families are being restored and renewed and that's great. But he's not doing it right. He's doing it contrary to the law. One of the things that you will notice, particularly in the New Testament, is whenever there is a move of God Religious people will always rise up and oppose a move of God. You see, because religious people are just critics. They don't have conviction of the Holy Spirit. They're just criti- they criticize people because they don't do it the way that, that they're comfortable with. You see, religion is about control. <clears throat> religion is about, um, I, I will control what happens. I'll control the way you meet God. I'll control the way you know God. I'll control what you do. In fact, I'll even control the word of God and only holy men like me can read it and I'll tell you what it says and that way I have control. But Jesus is about freedom. The Bible says where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And let me tell you, one of the defining marks of the church of 1122 is that this is a place of freedom, that you are free to know Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father, but you're free to know him however he's wired you to know him. One of the ways you'll see that work out is even in um, the different expressions of worship that we have here at the Church of 1122. Some of the ways, one of the ways that you guys worship um, the Lord is, some of you worship kind of like this. And uh, I don't mean to judge you, but I'm going to a little bit. Um, I'm just hope. I mean, really, some of you are like, I think they just said sloppy wet kiss. They really they said that. Hmm. Now I'm now some of you are brand new to church. You would you would say that you're not a Christian. Jesus is not your Lord, so you can stand and stare. And I don't blame you. It's probably weird for you. All right, but but for those of us that love Jesus, um, you walked into something kind of intimate. You know, I mean, we we just try to glorify God in worship and word around here. And so I'm hoping and praying for those of you that are Christians that are kind of stoically you know, worship in kind of a statue mode, that I'm just praying that something inside of you is just stirring and hallelujahing and it's just raging on the inside and that one day, one day it might work its way up to at least move your lips and, you know, you know the Bible says raise your hands. I, I don't know if you know that. Um, Pentecostals didn't make that up, right? It's the Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the Bible to say that. And so I, I'm hoping that, that one day that'll get there. But, but I know that some of you, your makeup and, and you're free to worship God just kind of in a, in a more quiet way. And then some of you people, you need elbow pads and stuff because you're wearing out the people beside you. All right? Don't get next to Mandy Miller on our staff unless you got, you got a duck in worship. I remember one time uh, it was at a 722 service and she was at the back of one of the aisles like this just worshiping. And you could see people waiting to go to get into their seat. Ready, ready, go. <laughs> All right? 
So praise God, all right? We, we worship, there is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So we're not about controlling how you experience God. There, there's freedom in this place. Religion, religion says, I increase. Religion is really about me. You see, when you know Jesus, it's all about, it's about him increasing. I, I can remember as a kid getting invited to go to church sometimes um, with one of my best friends, and we would go to, it was a Southern Baptist church. I can make fun of them because I am one, was one. I'm a recovering Baptist like many of you. And, um, and so if you feel like I particularly pick on the Southern Baptist, it's just because that's the one I know the best, all right? And, and so, come on, we can all make fun. That's why you're here, right? If you're Southern Baptist, praise God. You're not offended. If you were, you wouldn't be here. And so I remember going with my buddy, Joey Peel, to to Sunday school, and, and they gave out badges for, for like, good behavior in Sunday school. And, and my, my friend, he looked like General Patton up in Sunday school. I mean, he got a badge for every good thing that he did, and guess how many badges I had? None, because they didn't give a fishing badge or a skipping church badge. And so it, it was all about kind of showing off all your badges there. Uh, religion is about rules. Religion is about rules, and Jesus is about a relationship with him. And let me tell you, we've all walked down that road of trying to obey the rules, and it is exhausting. And I've told you a hundred times, the rules, if you wanted to be a good Christian where I grew up, it was that good Christians don't drink or smoke or chew or date or go with girls who do. That was, those were the four rules. And so that means celibacy for everybody in Dillon, because the prom queen carried a spit cup. You know what I mean? I mean, it was... And so you, you try that thing, you try to muscle right behavior, and it's exhausting, but Jesus is about a relationship with him. And, and does your life reflect holiness and godliness? It should if you know Jesus, but it's out of the confidence you have in that right standing before him, not trying to earn a right standing before him. And so uh, religion is about self-righteousness. God, I don't need you. I will cover my sin. It's what Adam did in the garden, self-righteousness. So if I do these things and pray these prayers at the right time and attend enough and sponsor enough kids and whatever it is, then I am righteous. And then Jesus is about an imputed righteousness. That you're actually, you know, no matter how good you think you can be, it will never be good enough. Because the problem is, is not that you're bad, but that you're dead. And that, that Christ, by his death and resurrection, imputes unto us his righteousness, a right standing before God. And our sin were, was heaped upon him on the cross so you know it's not about me trying harder to be self-righteous. But, but that, that plan was hopeless. And you see, uh, religion is about me being in control, but Jesus wants you to surrender your life to him. And so whenever, whenever God begins to move, I'm telling you, religious people will rise up and they will say, in this day they said he's doing it contrary to the law. Today, religious people will say they're not doing it right. And really what they mean is they're doing church in a way that I'm not comfortable with. Listen, Church of 1122, we want to be a unifying factor in the city of Jacksonville and hopefully even around the world. But we are going to be the biggest champions and fans of any church in our city and around the world that love Jesus and and preaches the Bible. We don't care how men and women come to know Christ as long as they're getting saved, as long as lives are being transformed. So we don't want to be a church that's critical of other churches because they don't do it the way we do it, but, but we actually want to be unified around the gospel. In fact, over the next few weeks, you're going to hear a lot about the revival that we're doing called Saturated. 
And so um, uh, we want to be saturated in the Word of God and the presence of God and in the love of God. And from, from uh, September the 18th through the 22nd, you remember the 23rd is our one-year anniversary. So on that, that week, 18th through the 22nd, we're inviting pastors from all over Jacksonville and from churches that do things differently than we do, very differently than we do. But they love Jesus and they preach the Word of God. And we are all gathering here together. Um, it will be Bishop George Davis. It'll be uh, uh, Bishop Van Gaten. It'll be Pastor Stovall Weems, Pastor Jerry Sweat, Sweat and myself all joining together for us as a church to join together and just seek the face of God in revival. And it's just going to be old school revival, all right? There'll be no sawdust, and I'm not wearing a white suit. But other than that, it's just going to be old school revival. And, <clears throat> in fact, um, we think it's such a big deal that we're going to call our entire church for, for 21 days before that. So starting on September the 1st, we're going to all, anybody that's medically able, to fast and pray and uh, you might just want to Google Daniel fast on your way home, and, uh, and, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to do a Daniel fast. We'll talk about it a lot more in the, in the ensuing weeks. But, but we believe a part of what God wants to do here is to not be like this religious group of people that says, hey, they're not doing it right, but that we would actually join hands with our brothers and sisters in Christ that do things a little different than us, and that we would all join together for the sake and the renown of Jesus. Amen? All right, verse 14. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourself, I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. So this was a big deal. He, the pro-counsel guy says, I'm not even going to listen to this. You guys figure it out yourselves. Verse 17 and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal, but Galio paid no attention to this. So it sucks to be Sosthenes, all right? That's the only thing it says about this guy in the whole Bible. They get mad. They're trying to stir something up. Their plan doesn't work, so they grab Sosthenes. They beat him up. They go, how about now? And the guy's like, no, sorry. Sorry, Sosthenes. Now, imagine what Paul's going to do. Don't look ahead. But based on what we know about Paul, he's on trial again for sharing the gospel. A group of religious people gather around and put him on trial. And what's Paul going to do next? He's going to do what he's always been doing. I mean, if any man is on mission, it is Paul. Paul must be the most frustrating man alive if you're opposed to the gospel. You go to Paul and you're like, Paul, we're going to kill you. And he's like, praise God, I'll be face to face with Jesus. Well, never mind, then we're going to put you in jail. Well, give me a hymn book because I'm going to sing praises and lead all of, all of the guards to Jesus. All right, well, never mind, we'll just leave you alone. Great, I'll plant a church in your city and we'll transform the entire city. What do you do with that guy? I mean, that, that's just a man who is on mission. So here's what Paul does in 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. Notice that he's never doing ministry alone. He's always raising up disciple-making disciples. Paul's not interested in converts. He's interested in making disciples. And so he, he raises up Priscilla and Aquila. And I love this next verse, powerful verse. At Sincrea, he had, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. The Bible would like you to know that Paul gets his hair cut in Sincrea. What in the world is that even in there for? The guy's in jail and out of jail and planting churches. But his haircut is important enough that Luke would be inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, why is stuff like that in the Bible? Let me tell you why. Because it's not myth and mythology. It actually happened. 
It actually happened. Luke is a doctor. He's a detail guy. And he's taken down an account of what happened in the spread of the gospel in the first century. And so that's why there's specific names and specific places. Because those were real people in real places. And Luke says he was on trial in in Corinth, and then he went by Eddie's barbershop and got him a haircut, and his first one was $11.22. And then from there, he goes on. Verse 19, and they came to Ephesus. The next series that we do here is just called Ephesus. We're going to talk about the rise and the fall of the church in Ephesus, all found in the Bible. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. Verse 20, and when they asked him to stay for a longer period of time, he declined. But on taking leave, he said, I will return to you if God wills, and he set sail from Ephesus. Verse 22, and when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and he greeted the church, and he then went to Antioch. 23, this is, this is where you're going to spend the whole time. After spending some time there, he departed and he went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, which is where the Black Eyed Peas uh, originated, I think, <clears throat> strengthening all the disciples. Let me read 23 again. After spending some time there, he departed and he went from one place to the next. And what did he do? Strengthening all the disciples. We're talking about what, it's, what it means to be on mission. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul, Paul, where is your mission field? Paul would say, well, it's from here to there. It's here. And if I'm there, then it's there. It's just wherever I am. That I'm on mission and geography is kind of irrelevant. Like, I don't go on mission trips. I'm just on mission wherever I am. And if I'm on a mission trip, then I'm on mission. But when I'm, on, I'm at home, I'm also on mission. Just wherever I am, I'm trying to live out the mission that God has for me. That, that it's not just like a trip a week or, or one week out of the year, but it's something that I do every single day of my life. The point is this, I put it in your notes this way, that being on mission is not about where you are, but who you are. Being on mission is not about where you are. It's about who you are. Instead of um, missions being something that we think about that you do for one week out of the year, or some of you people are like addicted to mission trips, and you go on every one that, that we have, and I know because you, you give me a letter trying to raise your support. Ooh, you don't have to get into Amway or something, make some money to go on all your mission trips. And so, <clears throat> but it's not about just that one week. It's, it's about, it's just about wherever you are, we are called to be on mission. And so Paul understood this. Paul clearly understood that wherever he was, that's where God had placed him for that time to be on mission. I want, I want to hop all, all over the Bible and just talk about what it looks like to be on mission wherever you are in your everyday life. Go Matthew chapter 28, Matthew chapter 28. If you're new to Bible study, we're going to hop around for a little bit, so if, if you, you can try to keep up, and if you do, praise God. If not, don't worry about it. Uh, Matthew chapter 28. Um, those of you that grew up in church, you know where I'm going, and you feel all pride for now. You probably leaned over and went, great commission. All right, so good for you. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. This is Jesus. It's called the Great Commission. This is Jesus gathering. He, he had about 120 followers right after his resurrection. <clears throat> and he, um, so he's lived, he's been crucified, dead, buried, resurrected on the third day. He's been preaching and teaching and eating and hanging out uh, for 40 days with over 500 people. And then this is going to be the last thing he commissions the church to do before he rises into heaven and ascends to be at the right hand of God the Father. Matthew 28, 18, he says this, And Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. Now, 
If you say that you have all authority, it's kind of irrelevant. But if you're the son of God, born of a virgin, lives a perfect life, they crucify you, you're dead, and then three days later, you're not dead anymore, and then you say you have all authority in heaven and earth, and the next thing that you say is going to be super important. Regardless of what it is, everybody can bank on the next thing that he says because all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto him. So if he says... All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. The Jags are going to win the Super Bowl. Then you can book the hotel room, get your plane tickets, buy, just go ahead and get the tickets because it's happening. And if you go, well, I don't know, then it don't matter because he said, well, he didn't really say it. I wish he would have, but he didn't. But, But whatever he says next is going to be, it's just going to happen. You can get ready. Verse 19, here it goes. Go, therefore. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is known as the Great Commission. This is the mission not only of the church universal, but every individual Christian. This is our mission. The way it plays out could be different, but that's the mission, to make disciples. Now that first word says go. Go. But the go is not the imperative. Make disciples is the imperative. The word go literally means like as you were on the go. Not so much pack up all your stuff and go somewhere and then when you get there, then you're going to make disciples. But it literally means as you are on the go. Like as you're going to work and as you're going to school and as you're going uh, to play whatever you play and as you're going to the gym and as you're going on mission trips and as you are on the go, then what you and I are called and really commanded and commissioned to do is to be making disciples. Now some of you, some of you will begin to think, well, you know what? I'm not qualified to be somebody that lives on mission that's making disciples as I'm on the go because I'm not, that very, I'm not a very good disciple. Well, I've got good news. Look what Jesus says. Jesus says to these group of men and women, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So if I was in the crowd, I'd be like, Jesus, I have a question. So you want us to teach them to obey all that you have commanded? Yes. Well, I've got a problem with that because we're not obeying all that you've commanded. I mean, look at your boy Peter, exhibit A. He's a train wreck. Don't you remember when he got out to walk on the water, but he was worried about the wind and the waves, and he began to sink? And you said out of your mouth to him, you have little faith. So you want the little faith guy to go? Yeah, I want him on the go too. Well, let's just stay on Peter. Remember the other night when we were having the Lord's Supper, and he promised, I would never deny you. I would die for you. He denied you three times that night, and one time was to a junior high girl, okay? I was there. I heard him. What do you think about that, Jesus? Yeah, I want him to be on the go. Well, listen, he doesn't get it at all. You remember the night they betrayed you, and they were coming to arrest you, and then Peter pulls out his sword and cuts that dude's ear off? The guy's bleeding all over the place, and Jesus reaches down with the ear and just kind of puts, puts that dude's ear back on. And you know, he looked at Peter, and he's like, really, dude? Really? Three years of discipleship, sword fighting was never a part of our training. What are you doing? And Jesus would go, yep, I tell you what. Because I would think, I mean, if I knew Peter, I'd I'd probably think, we got to kick Peter out of the group. And Jesus goes, no, we're going to put him in charge. He's the new pope. All right, he's in charge of the whole thing. So if you feel unqualified, you're a great disciple. It's just evidence that Jesus knows that we're all fixer-uppers. We're all fixer-uppers. Not only, not only does the fact that, that God doesn't love some future version of you 
Not only should that give you some rest in our, our justification before God, but it also should give you some rest to know that you don't have to like get to some kind of Christian level before he begins to use you to be on mission for him. In fact, there are many people, and you know what they need from Christians? They just need that authentic testimony. They need that authentic testimony because if you were perfect, nobody could stand to be around you anyway. You know those people that think they're perfect? Yeah, me too, all right? Nobody wants to hear from them. Some of you are placed in your work, in your family, in your school, with your jacked up life, and the reason is because you need to go and make disciples even in your messed up state because there's people that you work with and as you talk about your relationship with Jesus and they see your life, you know what they're thinking? They're thinking, well, man, if he can be a Christian, I think I can too because this guy's a joke. And that's how it, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so we should be on the go wherever we are. And then he says this, and behold, I am with you always. And as you're on the go making disciples, and you begin to be filled with that kind of fear, that like, I don't know if I can do this. That's where he leans in. He goes, you're not alone. You can't do this. But I'm here too. I'm here to give you the words. I'm here to give you that extra patience, that love, that mercy, that boldness to give that invitation. I am with you. You see, the truth is, I love going on mission trips. I mean, I really, really love going on mission trips. I love that, that like second morning when you wake up and you get up early, early, early and you come wandering out of your room like the walking dead, you know, and everybody looks horrible. And uh, everybody kind of looking around and then, you know, you're going to just that little, that, oh, that sanctified bean juice coffee, you know. You get up there and then everybody's getting them some coffee. And let me, let me assure you of this. If you go on a mission trip with me, we get good coffee to the glory of God, all right? <laughs> And so, and you get a couple cups in you and you kind of start being able to relate and act like a human. And then what we do is we do 30 minutes alone with the Lord every morning. And we just give you a, a, one chapter out of the Bible and everybody on the team kind of splits up and goes to wherever they want to go and you just spend 30 minutes alone with the Lord. And so, uh, for some of us that have become accustomed to that kind of thing, you know, it's just cool. And for many, many of our people on our mission trips, it's brand new. And so you get out there and you sit down and you get your Bible. And we just give you one chapter. So it takes, what, 90 seconds to read that? And so you read it and you think, what am I going to do for 28 and a half minutes? So then you go, oh, I know, I'll pray. That's what I'll do, I'll pray. And so you pray, dear God, you pray for your family back home and you pray for the mission trip and you pray about that roommate that you're stuck with and you pray about all those things, about half of the Lord's Prayer that you memorized. And then and you go, amen, that's about it. And you go, oh, 23 minutes, wow. But then after a few days, that time with the Lord just gets rich. I mean, Rich, you begin to hear God speak to you in ways you've never heard before. And then right after that, after you read that chapter, we all get together in these impromptu disciple groups. And you're with four or five or six people that you didn't even know three days ago. And now you're just pouring your heart out. And it's some of the richest biblical fellowship that you've ever had. And then you go eat breakfast, and you, and you typically overeat, right? Because you're kind of freaked out about the food on a mission trip. And you're like, pancakes? Whew, I don't know what's for lunch. So I think I'll eat 14 pancakes, and maybe that'll... <laughs> that'll do me through the day here. You put peanut butter on them and stuff, and you just, eat like a dog. And then, and then you go get on a bus or something, you know, and, and go up these windy, crazy roads, and, 
And then you show up on whatever project we're working on, depending on the country and the context. And you might build something or be handing out medicine or door-to-door evangelism or food. I don't know, whatever it is. But you're working alongside some of our people from our church family and some, some, some indigenous folks from that church family. And you guys realize your family. And, and, then, and then you begin to connect with some people uh, from that culture. And you just have this new boldness to share your faith in ways you never thought you would share your faith. And you begin to do that, and then you come back for dinner, and you overeat again because you go, spaghetti? How can you mess up spaghetti? And so you just eat a ton of spaghetti because you don't know what's breakfast tomorrow, right? So you eat as much as you can. And then you go to worship that night, and, 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 and it's just, I mean, the way you worship, there's areas of your heart that you surrender, and for the first time, you, like, raise your hands and pray out loud. And you just do some of that kind of stuff. And even though you're exhausted and ready to go to bed, you stay up way too late because these people that you didn't even know who they were when they were getting on the bus earlier that week, have now become some of your best friends in the world. And I love going on mission trips. And usually about the fourth day, some, somebody, it's always a girl, comes up and says, why can't we just stay here? Don't you want to stay here forever? And I go, Lord, no, lady. Are you crazy? I don't want to stay here forever. I like to go, but I want to come home, all right? I want to be with my family, and I want to be with my church family. And I would like to drink out of the, out of the you know, faucet and take a shower with my mouth open and stuff like that, right? I want to come home. God's common grace of AC and things like that. And then that's when I began to alert our team that you realize, you know that special time you're having with the Lord each morning? I don't know if you figured this out, but do you know there's a 6 a.m. in Jacksonville? And a Bible and Jesus all in Jacksonville. And so as you were on the go, you know you can do all that stuff at home that we do right here. All that same stuff. And that's when it begins to click. Now, should we go? Yes and amen, and we will always go. And some of you will stay. Some of you will stay. Most of you will come home, get filled and fueled again, and we'll go and come home and go and come home. But even as we are home and as we are on the go, the Great Commission is about making disciples in your ordinary, everyday, go-to-work, go-to-school kind of life. Now, how do you do that? How do you do that? Because when you think missionary, you think, you think people like Trey. Guy on the front row is going, are you going to Africa? All right, looks like little Jesus, all right? So little Jesus up here, he does, just like him. That's what you think. And you think, well, I, you know, I can't be little Jesus. I work at the bank. So what do you do? Go to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Um, <clears throat> Psalm 139, 13. 13. Uh, and let me just say this, uh, these verses, I, pr- I preach on them, I mention them often, they're not just for girls, all right, fellas? These verses are also for us. Now, I think they have a special place in the lives of females today because of where we live, because um, it, is, it is a tough time to be a girl, not that I, I've been one, but I, I live with two at my house, and we live in a culture where that says if you're not beautiful, that you're not lovable, and beauty is defined like on the magazines and, and those girls without computer enhancement can't even live up to their own images. And so you're getting bombarded with that. So I would encourage you to memorize. Every girl in here should memorize Psalm 139, 14. You should write it on your mirror. You should read it every single day. And even if you don't feel fearfully and wonderfully made, you would, you would proclaim the truth of God and pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit that your feelings catch up with the truth. But, fellas, these verses are for us too, okay? I know it talks about knitting and wombs and stuff and that kind of makes us feel weird, but listen. 
He says, for you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. What Psalm 139 is teaching us, and I hope you know this, is that do you know that you and I were put together on purpose? That we were put together on purpose. That you are not an accident. There are accidental parents, but there are no accidental children. And the way you were formed was on purpose by God. That some of you are tall, and some of you are short, and some of you are thin, and some of you are not. And some of that is just how God wove you together in, in your mother's womb. And not just your physical being, but also he says there were some, um, there was some, some, just some unformed substance. That's like the things that you're just naturally good at. Just some of your natural abilities and some of the things that you like and some of the desires that God has given you. Like some of you in this room are athletic and you just kind of lean towards athletics and you're just a good athlete. I mean, yeah, you might practice and you might get a coach and those kind of things, but God gave you just that natural athleticism. Some of you wish you were athletic, so you scream at your children playing like four-year-old soccer because you're trying to, you know, live out some unreached dreams and shame on you, all right? But (laughs) some of you are just artistic. Some of you are just artistic and you can just, I mean, just have these images in your mind and draw them or paint them and it's beautiful. I can't at all. I mean, I cannot at all. Barely stick figures. Some of you, some of you are great singers and some of you are not at all. <laughs> Let me tell you, if you're, if you're a poor singer and you want to be a great worshiper, you should sit down front with me because you can sing as loud as you want and you, nobody can hear you and you don't mess anybody else up. We ought to get all the good singers in the back because the people in the back don't sing as loud and you can help them out. And then all the poor singers should sit up front with me and we can just belt it out, make a joyful noise. It's terrible, all right? It is terrible. And I know it is. I can hear who's sitting next to me and I think, whoo, they're as bad as I am. Praise the Lord, all right? But that's why I'm not in the band. I don't even know if that last song was planned because that's the first time the, the you know, Slobby Wet Kiss song. But did you see how just Ben just starts going? And then the whole band, was it planned, producers? No, no, okay. So Ben's like, all right, I ain't done. I'm going to do one more. And that's not, they didn't rehearse it or any of that. And you see how everybody can just go? You see, God gave all those guys and girls just that innate ability. And now they had to work on it and they have to hone their craft. But it's God who has put you together on purpose. Do you understand that? Put you together on purpose. And you didn't choose to do those things. It's not like you knocked on the womb and were like, hey, can I order six foot nine, please, because I want to be a basketball player. No. So don't be silly and try to take all the credit for what the Lord has done in you either. The place I see this happen more than anywhere else is the NBA. You guys watch the NBA? Not me either. But when they're on SportsCenter, here's what I noticed. <laughs> that a guy, when somebody in the NBA dunks, he, he shouldn't be able to cheer for that. He's, he goes up and dunks, and then he's going down the court like, look at me. I'm like, dude, you're gigantor, all right? All you did was lean up on your tippy toes and do that. My three-year-old does that in the trash can every day, but she doesn't run to our room going, I am the best, all right? The Lord made you a giant, praise God, all right? Praise God. Make a free throw, then we might cheer for you. That's what I'm talking about. Well, the same thing is true with you. You were put together on purpose, that God gave you 
abilities and wants and desires. But here's, here's what Psalm 139 tells us. But, but it's for him and that God has marked out your days. And if you begin to think of Psalm 139 in light of the great commission that you are to go and to make disciples, and a part of the way that God put you together is that you, as you were on the go to make disciples, you're going to do it in the way he put you together. So like the way God put me together, um, I, I've, always, I've always been a storyteller. My whole life, when I was a little kid, I've always been the storyteller. If we had a common story in the group and somebody started to tell the story, somebody would be like, shut up, Joby, you tell the story. Tell them about the time. And I would, there we were, you know, that kind of deal. And I'd never let the truth get in the way of a really good story. And I would just tell stories. And I've always been very aggressive, very aggressive. It's probably why I did play sports. I wasn't super athletic. But my favorite sports were contact sports where I could make other people bleed. Those were my favorite sports. Continue to be to this day. I was always a leader. I could just get groups of people to do the thing I wanted them to do. So I rarely got in trouble alone. There was usually like a whole neighborhood thing going on. That's just how I was put together. Very aggressive. Always talking. Always questioning status quo. I was always the person to say, hey, is that the best way? Are you sure? I'm pretty sure I've got this figured out better than you. Let's go in my direction. That's just kind of how I was. Now, here's the thing. As now, as I look back on the way God formed me and knit me together and set out for me the days um, for him, now that makes a pretty good gift mix if you're going to be a planting, a church planter and the lead pastor of a church. (laughs) Doesn't work out so great for a seventh grader. Okay, question authority, very aggressive, great storyteller, can lead lots of people. So the thing that I spent lots and lots of time in detention for as a seventh grader and an eighth grader, now it's, it, those are the very things that God uses for us to do this together. So what about you? How has God shaped you and formed you? John Eldridge in his book, Wild at Heart. When he's talking about how to figure out what God's will is for your life, particularly when you're thinking about, you know, vocation and career, he says, the question to ask is not what does this world need, but what makes me come alive? Because what this, world's, what this world needs is for us to come alive. You see, that's, that's what Psalm 139 is about. You see, uh, I, I thought falsely as a teenager, if I surrender my life to the Lord, he's just going to make me do stuff that I don't want to do. Well, in fact... You'll never find freedom like you do in Christ to be the you that he created you to be. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, fulfill your ministry. So to be on mission as you go doesn't mean that we all quit our jobs and join a commune or we all quit our jobs and we all become international missionaries or everybody quits their job and comes to the church. That would be a travesty but that you would be the person that he created you to be. And some of you love art, and some of you love athletics, and some of you love business, and some of you love math, right? I don't know why you would. That's not your fault. God made you like that, okay? (laughs) And so, so as you begin to understand that as you are on the go, wherever you are, and as you begin to understand that God is the one that put you together on purpose, and as you're on the go, we're called to make disciples the way he created you with your gifts and aptitudes. Now go to Acts chapter 17. We covered it a couple weeks ago. I ran through this part in Acts 17 because I knew this sermon was coming up. I'm just going to read pieces of it, okay? So it looks like I'm jumping around. 
I'm going to read half of 24, half of 25, half of 26 and 7. Here we go. So Acts 17, 24, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it, skip down to the back half of 25, He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Verse 26, Having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us. So what he's saying here is that God made the world and everything in it. God designed you and gave you life and breath. But God also determined allotted periods and boundaries of your dwelling place. So the reason that you live in Jacksonville, the reason that you're a student at UNF, the reason that you have your job and work where you work is because Jesus commanded you that as you are on the go, you make disciples wherever you are. And then Psalm 139 tells us that God put you together on purpose. And that has a lot to do with why you do what you do and the reason that you work at your company and live in your neighborhood and have the hobbies you have and all of those things is because God designed you that way. And when you begin to see your life as a life on mission, then you begin to see through the lens that God created you to see. And so when you go to school, you can begin to see it as a mission field as opposed to like torture from the government, okay? And you can begin to see it that way. And you can begin to see your cubicle, not not as a curse, but as a calling. That God has established you in that place. Why? So that others might seek him and find him because he's not far off. And the reason he's not far off is because he put you there. And so folks, that's what it means to be on mission. However God put you together in whatever place he has placed you. And I hope and I pray that your identity is not in your vocation and what you do. Because I'm just telling you, it's a trap and it's a wasted life. If you work, 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 work just to try to produce whatever that thing is that work is telling you that you need to produce. I I mean, you realize realize that that one day you're going to retire from that, right? And they're going to gather around in the little break room and they're going to eat cake. But it's not because they like you. It's because those fatties like cake. That's what that's about. So they get a cake for everything. And then, a few years later, you're going to die. And they're not going to name anything at your company over you. And three years after you're dead, they're not going to be talking about, man, remember Ted, he was amazing. No. They're going to paint you up like a clown, put you in a box, throw dirt in your face, go back to the church, eat potato salad, and talk about how great you look. Oh, didn't he look natural? No, he looked dead, all right? That's what they're going to do. Is that too far? It's going to happen. So you're going to spend your life in that? Absolutely not. I hope not. I hope you realize you've been called to such a greater mission. Now, that doesn't mean be lazy in your job. Are you kidding me? Christians ought to be the hardest working people on the planet. Christians ought to be the best students in the planet. Because we're not working for our boss. We're working for the Lord. And that we would leverage that for the sake of his kingdom. But if you can begin to go to work and to school and to... Facebook and to carpool line and to ball games and to ballet recitals, if you begin to go with the understanding of the Great Commission, then, then it changes everything. It changes everything. One of the things I do in our community is I coach Little League Baseball. All right, I coach Little League Baseball. Um, and I know it's not a big deal to you, but you're not the returning champions, all right? So we are. Now, but honestly, I, it, it has very little to do with baseball. It has a lot to do because I love my son. It has a lot to do with me just being plugged into our community. Because the majority of the people I hang out with are Christians. 
Um, if you're going to be on our staff, the first question is, have you surrendered your life to Jesus? No. Well, then you can't have a job here, okay? So the majority of the people that I spend most of my time with, they already know Jesus. And so I want to, as I'm coaching Little League Baseball, I'm on mission. Because if it was about the quality of the baseball playing, I, oh, man, I'd go crazy. Hey, T-ball was the worst, all right? If you've never yelled at a five-year-old, it's because you've never coached T-ball. So <clears throat> we're, I'm coaching T-ball a few years ago, and uh, I'm standing on the field because you have to stand on the field, right? Because you have to go, hey, look at the ball. Hey, look at the ball. They're about to hit the ball. It's going to come to you and hit you in the face, kid. Look at the ball. Look at the ball, right? So you're out there with them. And so I look over, and my third baseman, okay? I've told you this once before. My third baseman is laying stiff as a board, arm by, arms by his side, face down on the sand of the infield. The Bible calls that prostrate. All right, he was laying there prostrate before the field, and he's using the bill of his hat just to scoop up a mound of dirt. <laughs> what do you do with that? I just, I just prayed for his dad. <laughs> you know, people are like, which one's your kid? He's like, I don't see him. I don't think he's... I think he's out here. Now, my wife's son is on third base. But, uh, <clears throat> so if it was about baseball, I'd lose my mind. But, but, but as I begin to understand and see through the filter of living a life on mission and know that it's not about baseball, then, then I know that, man, my job is, is just to love those kids and and when God gives me the opportunity to herald the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just to those kids, but, but really to their families. And can I tell you, um, from, from heaven's point of view, when we get all worried about the stuff we get worried about at work, you know what I think we look like? I think we look like my third baseman. We're like, oh no, the report. Right? And you're freaking out like it's the most important thing in the world. And I think the Lord sees you just scooping up. I think the Lord wants to go, hey, Hoss, hop up, get in the game, okay? That is not the game that is most important here. Your life is this long in eternity. So let's be on mission wherever we are. Jesus puts it all together in Matthew chapter 5, 14 through 16. This is a part of the Sermon on the Mount, very popular verses. Matthew 5, Jesus says, you are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. Like it didn't accidentally get there. Somebody planned a city and they set it on a hill. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. But they put it on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So this week, folks, and for the rest of our life, if you know Jesus, you were called and commanded to live on mission. Not just go on a mission trip, yes and amen, but to live on mission wherever you are. Tomorrow at work, tomorrow at school, tomorrow with your family, in your neighborhood, wherever it is, God is calling you to be on mission there. Now, now some of you have been disobedient to God's call in your life, and you need to quit there and go do something else. But that's probably the minority of people in this room. Most of you, God has put you together and placed you, set you like a city on a hill. And it's time to go there and be on mission. A few months ago, when we took a, a mission trip to Jamaica, a few of us went early. <clears throat> and uh, 
to, to get things set up, buy construction supplies and medicines and all kind of stuff. And so we're flying through Miami. So we go to Miami. We have this long layover, and um, we're in Miami. And one of the guys that I'm with, there's just me and two guys from the church, and he's got like a platinum card of something, you know, and you can go in one of those special rooms in the airport. Oh, I just realized like this last year that they have those rooms in the airport. Now, I know all you hoity-toities, you've been sitting in them for years, but I've just been sitting in the regular uncomfortable benches. And so when I walked into the Admiral's Club, I was like, what is this special land of Oz that we are in, all right? And it was amazing. I was like, free pretzels, you know, eating them and just taking apples. Like, you can get as many of these as you want because I'm gearing up for the mission trip, all right? And so I'm sure I was embarrassing my friends, but, but then after I get all my apples and pretzels, I'm kind of just sitting there, and this guy walks by, and one of my buddies kind of kicks me. He's like, that, that's Mel Gibson. And I look up, and it's Mel Gibson. And Mel Gibson walks by and just kind of leans on the wall. I mean, he's 20 feet from me, maybe. And I'm just looking at him like, that is the passion of the Christ, brave heart, Mel Gibson. Now, I, I don't know that I would get starstruck about many people, but that, I mean, that's Mel Gibson, really? Right there. And I can't, i just just staring at him, just like, wow, there he is. He's buff, he's all jacked up, you know, and he's, and he's like got headphones on, and he's just working on his phone. And, 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 and I wanted to go just talk to him. I don't know why, but I did. I just wanted to go talk to him and share the gospel. But, and so I was going to go. And then this teenage girl walks up, and she asks if she could take a picture with him, and he says... He's, he was nice to her, and he talked to her, and he said, now nah, we can't really do pictures because then this whole place will get weird. And so then, you know, I was like, dang, because then I couldn't go up and be like, what about me? You know, I couldn't do that. <laughs> so I did what we all do, right? I just get my phone out and pretend like I'm texting, and I go, take a little picture, <laughs> put it on Facebook, me and Mel hanging at the uh, airport. <laughs> so the other guy with me... <clears throat> He takes his phone, and he takes a picture too, right? And he's tweeting everybody and all of that. And then the third guy with us, he's kind of, he just got a new iPhone, and he's trying to, he's going to take a picture, and then, boop, and the flash goes off. And it makes the camera sound, you know? (laughs) So the flash goes off, and Mel looks, and then he says, it flashed. (laughs) You think? And I don't want to tell you who it is, because it's embarrassing, but his name's Brad Bowen, and he's on staff. Okay? So now Mel's staring us down, you know, and he, Braveheart, is looking at us, like he's going to kill us. And so, uh, and then, then Mel Gibson goes over to get some coffee. And so I'm just want to, I'm just going to go stand next to him, right? And so I go up and like, I'm going to get some coffee and he's right there and there's some apples over. So I just wanted to touch him. So I go for an apple and when I do, I just kind of gave him a whoop. And, and from here to here, touched Braveheart, right there, Braveheart. Right there. I know. <clears throat> so I tell you all that to say this. Braveheart is my favorite movie by far. It's not even close. Any other good movie is just trying to be a remake of Braveheart. If you don't love Braveheart, I would seriously question your salvation. Okay, so that's where I'm at on this. <clears throat> love it. It's awesome. And so about 10 years ago when we had first moved here um, to Jacksonville, Gretchen and I lived in a condo down at the beach. And Gretchen just worked right around the corner from our condo. And she would come home for lunch sometimes. And, and one day, I'm standing in her condo watching Braveheart for the, you know, hundredth time or so. And I'm, I'm standing there with a sword. I have a sword. 
And so who didn't have a sword? Well, I do. So when you, I'm watching it with a sword. And so I'm there, and it's the battle scene. I mean, he's just done the speech, and the sons of Scotland I see before me today. And freedom! And I got my sword. I'm ready to roll. And then the door opens, and Gretchen walks in, and I'm standing there with the sword. So what are you doing? Well, I'm watching Braveheart with my sword. And I know it's ridiculous. It is. It's ridiculous. And I felt silly. Very silly. And so I finished watching Braveheart. And that night, as I'm just kind of thinking before I go to bed and all my silliness, I really began to kind of feel like a weenie. I mean, just feel like super, just insignificant and small. And, and, and maybe some of you, especially guys, maybe you do that when you see those kind of heroic movies, right? And, and, and then you look at your own life. I mean, this guy's painting his face blue and just these incredible battle cries and moon in the army and free in Scotland. And what am I doing? I'm running a youth group. Pizza blast Friday night. And I just began to, I began to feel just insignificant, like, what, what am I doing, you know? They're not going to make movies about me. I don't know, I'll ever stand in front of a crowd. And, and then the Holy Spirit began to speak to me. Not, not like out loud, but I know the shepherd and I know his voice. And the Lord just began to speak to my heart and say, what William Wallace did was temporary. It was temporary man fighting for lines on a map. And what you do is fight for the eternity of people's souls here in Jacksonville and around, and around the world. So listen, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then listen to me. Your mission is no different than my mission. And, and, and we may celebrate what you know, Hollywood puts out as, as a hero, but let me tell you this, that you don't have the right to be bored. You don't have the right to just get up and go to work and feel like, well, this is nothing and meaningless. Are you kidding me? That not only has God commissioned you to be on mission wherever you go, and he put you together on purpose, and he placed you in this time for this purpose, and he set you as a city on a hill so that anybody that you come in contact with is not far from God. So let us not, let us not think that we are in, insignificant or that, or that somehow a Christian life could be boring because it cannot be. That you and I have been called and formed and created and commissioned to be on mission for Christ. And what William Wallace did was awesome, but it was temporary. It was temporary. It was temporary. And if tomorrow morning when you get up, you get up to be on mission in your school, in your neighborhood, in your family, wherever it is. And if you live your life on mission, that God could use you to make a difference in eternity. And in fact, the reason that you're here today is because somebody, somebody in your life realized that they were on mission from God. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for every, every man, every woman, every student in this place. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak into their lives. Lord, I pray for our students going to middle school and high school tomorrow. God, I pray for our college students. Lord, I pray for our businessmen and women. God, I pray for the firefighters and the policemen and the teachers. God, I pray for the stay-at-home mom. Lord, whatever it is, whatever that thing is you've called us to do, God, the context is not nearly as important as the content of our heart that you have called us, that as we are on the go, that we would be making disciples. So God, would you give us your lenses by which we see this world? 
God, we repent if we've ever as a Christian said that we're bored. Because if we have, God, we've taken our eyes off the cross and the Great Commission. And so, God, I pray that you would renew our spirit this week as we go on mission. In schools and in universities, in homes and in neighborhoods, in office complexes and truck stops. God, wherever it is that you have placed us for your kingdom and not ours. And then, God, we praise you for the joy that we have when we join our Lord in being on mission. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we connect. I mean, we, we respond to the gospel in lots of different ways. We're going to all sing together. Maybe, um, maybe there's somebody that God has placed you near to draw that person unto unto him this very week and you know that this week you've got to open your mouth and talk about your faith and talk about church and talk about Jesus maybe you want to come and pray about that person or maybe you want to come and pray about clarity of the mission that God has given you you can do that we also respond by bringing our tithes and offerings to the boxes all around the sides of the room or the giving kiosk here in the back and then we join our voices together and respond to the gospel by singing praise unto him let us respond